89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, and it is a real privilege to have the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, as well as the author of this new book, Weathering Climate Change, Dr. Hugh Ross, joining us by the wonders of Zoom from the States. G'day, Hugh. Hello. Good to see you. Look, it's uh, wonderful to uh, be with you and have you on the program. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what Reasons to Believe is, because uh, there may be some who know, oh, I know exactly what that is, and others go, never heard of that before. What is it? Yeah, it's based on the two books doctrine that God reveals himself through the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And we're a scientific team that looks at the latest discoveries in nature and use those as tools to bring people to the book of Scripture into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, take us through a bit of your journey. Um, you founded this a, a number of years ago. Uh, take us through a bit of your journey in terms of faith and also science. Uh, and maybe you can give us just the, the, um, the list of your, your degrees and your various qualifications as well. Sure. Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. I have a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Toronto and uh, did follow up uh, postdoctoral research at Caltech on quasars and galaxies. And I was not raised in a Christian home, but I got into astronomy at age seven. But by age eight, I knew that astrophysics would be my future career. And I was reading an average of four or five books on astronomy and physics per week during my growing up years. And uh, when I was 16, so I devoted a year to studying cosmology and depth. And that's when I realized the universe must have a beginning. And if it's got a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So starting at age 17, I went on a quest to find the cosmic beginner. Looking first in the writings of the great philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant and René Descartes, discovered they had mistaken concepts of the universe and then I began to look at the world's holy books. And after a two-year in-depth study, realized of all the world's holy books, only the Bible correctly described science, history, and uh, geography. And was the only book that actually predicted future scientific discoveries and future historical events. And I tell people I didn't really get to know Christians well until I came to Caltech but I did see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two Christians that gave out Gideon Bibles in a public school. And uh, so I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible at age 19, giving my life to Jesus Christ. And uh, when I showed up at Caltech, I got involved at a church that's between Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And within seven months, they put me on their pastoral staff. And it's that church that actually helped me launch Reasons to Believe, because I said, this is a message that needs to go out to the whole world. And uh, I've made three speaking trips to Australia as part of that uh, ministry. Yeah. Um, before we, we go on a bit more, and we want to spend most of our time talking about uh, your new book around climate change. But just before we do, uh, you know, some might hear and, and perhaps maybe if they have a Christian faith or maybe they, they don't go, well, Sorry, did you just say, Hugh, that um, there was a whole host of things that the Bible proved about science? Isn't, isn't faith and science like opposed to each other? Could you actually tell us some of those things that you discovered in the Bible that you went, well, actually, this is that, that connection? Right. Well, in going through the world's holy books, I noticed all of them had uh, texts that dealt with creation, but typically just one or two short texts. 
when I got into the Bible, I found dozens of chapter length or longer passages that dealt with creation, giving details of what happened, when, where, and what order. And in particular, what impressed me as an astronomer, I saw in the Old Testament the four fundamental uh, features of Big Bang cosmology, that the universe can be traced back to a space-time beginning, that it expands from that space-time beginning under laws of physics that do not change, or one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. So I realized that thousands of years ago, the Bible predicted all the foundations of Big Bang cosmology, which no astronomer even had a hint at until the 20th century. So that's one example for me where I saw the Bible's got predictive power. I also realized it was the only book in the past that even made these points about the universe. I was also really impressed uh, with going through the Genesis creation text, realizing that it perfectly followed what we call the scientific method. And in following that scientific method, realized that Genesis described 10 events of creation. Each event was correctly described and each event was in the correct chronological order. And I realized this is way beyond the science of um, Moses who composed it thousands of years ago. And that's just a couple of several hundred examples I found in the Bible where it accurately predicted future scientific discoveries. I looked over a two-year period to see if I could find an error or a mistake. I found ones I didn't understand, but I couldn't find a single provable error or contradiction. And that was what persuaded me this book we call the Bible must be the inspired message from the one that created the universe. Yeah. Um, Hugh, why then are there those who perhaps hold the same qualifications and degrees that you do and say, well, the, the Bible's just not true? Um, why are they not seeing it like that? Well, what's the discussions, I suppose, you have when you're, you're talking to peers with those same qualifications and they're disagreeing? Well, I think the big trip up is the first page of the Bible. A lot of my peers, that's as far as they get. They say, this is scientific nonsense. I, I this, this book has no value for me. Uh, but where I challenge them is to say, notice that Genesis 1-2 establishes the frame of reference and the initial conditions for the six creation days. Those are the first two steps of what we call a scientific method. If we actually identify the frame of reference, as the text tells us in Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of God is hovering on the surface of the waters, that the point of view is on the surface of the earth, not above the earth, then everything is in the correct chronological order. If you put it above the earth, almost everything is wrong. And so establishing that frame of reference makes all the difference. Likewise, the starting conditions. And I'll often cite uh, um, Galileo. He said, the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong point of view or the wrong frame of reference. And to me, Genesis 1 is a key example of that. Yeah. Uh, as you then launched Reasons to Believe, and it's now run for, for many, many years, um, what do you see as uh, the, the critical um, achievement of your organization? What's, what's the bottom line aim that you, you're, you're achieving and you're actually seeing occur? Well, we founded the organization to reach STEM people for Christ. People in uh, science, technology, engineering, medicine, mathematics, who have not been raised in Christian homes, 
and basically engage them with the evidence, dialogue and debate with them with the goal of bringing them to faith in Christ. So, and that's what's been gratifying to me is seeing some of these top STEM people uh, give their lives to Christ. And uh, almost on, on a daily basis, I get some note in social media saying, I read one or two of your books, and that was a turning point in my giving my life to Christ. Yeah, wonderful. Um, my guest is Dr. Hugh Ross. He is the founder of Reasons to Believe and the author of this new book, Weathering Climate Change. We're going to be back to talk about that book, uh, talk about some of the mindsets that various people have around climate change, uh, look at what are some of the facts and what are the things that we need to actually do as a community as well. Uh, that's on the way next year on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. Dr. Hugh Ross is the founder of uh, Reasons to Believe. Uh, we've been hearing a bit about that and the, his work, as he said, Look, I'm, I'm an astrophysicist, I, I'm a scientist. I, I understand that as we look at the Bible, as we look at faith, I, I can see uh, God working in so many different ways and so many of the proofs of the Bible come about in science as well. Uh, you've written a, a, a ton of books too, Hugh. Um, I'm not quite sure how you have time to do anything else as I look, look down the list of books uh, that you've gone to, but this most recent one, Weathering Climate Change, before we even get to some of the questions around it, um, why this book, um, why this topic was the next one for you to say that this is what I want to do? Well, I think there's a lot of fine-tuning uh, evidence in uh, the climate. So I wanted to bring that part out. And uh, Can we just explain what fine-tuning means for perhaps those who may not sure. know what we mean? Yeah. One of my motivations in writing the book, Weathering Climate Change, was to show people uh, that the climate that the Earth has had over, this, over its whole history is fine-tuned is designed to make possible the existence not only of human beings, but the possibility of us launching global high technology civilization to a degree that billions of people can hear and respond uh, to the gospel message. Yeah, it's that um, remarkable moment as I've explored that more and more to, to understand that, you know, people will say things like, well, if the Earth was a, a degree off here, a degree off there. Everything's just perfect. The, the odds are, are astronomical, aren't they? That uh, everything would work just perfect for us to be here. So in terms of then choosing this climate change, so apologies, I, I interrupted there. Um, this book for you at, at this time, obviously it's a hot button topic for, for a lot of people and, and a lot of people within the faith community as well. So uh, to, to step into this, um, I, I know that you approached it in that very scientific method that you do again, but uh, the spur for doing it, because I'm assuming you knew there's going to be some people who, uh, you know, anytime they just hear the words climate change, it's going to cause a bit of a furor. Well, part, that was another objective I had was to take the politics and the debate heat out of this subject matter, basically making the point there are ways we can continue to stabilize our remarkable climate where we boost the world economy rather than cripple the world economy, where we enhance the ecosystems of the world rather than damage the ecosystems. I mean, if we really are uh, able to engage these win-win-win solutions, who's going to vote against it? Who's going to argue against it? So my goal is to get the politics out, get the debate out, and that's actually move forward. Uh, but I think step one, people need to appreciate what a miracle it is that we've had 9,500 years of extreme climate stability and realize that this is 
unique in Earth's history. We've never had this degree of climate stability before where we've been at the optimal mean temperature for human civilization. So we recognize this as a special uh, gift. I think it's gonna give us more appreciation for what we must do to sustain this amazing climate stability. Yeah. Uh, does my, my first question as we really come to this is, um, do I have to come with a certain mindset to actually get the most out of this book and, and, and this topic generally? It, it does feel like as much as the desire is to not have the politics in it, it, it feels like that it's just been so muddied by politics, this conversation. It seems like that if it's not even just the politics, that it feels like there's only two camps. Either there is climate change and there's disaster, or there's no such thing as climate change and everyone's just going on about it. So even if you took the politics out of it, how do how do I best approach it as a mindset if you know I'm somebody who's not a, a scientist, I don't have that concept, how should I be thinking best? Well, number one, I waited to bring this book out until we had indisputable temperature data. That was not the case four years ago. It is now. Uh, thanks to diligent research, people have actually looked at 74 different temperature proxies. And what they discovered was the stability of the climate over the past 9,500 years was four times more stable than what we thought three years ago. So it's even more remarkable than what we thought. And given the 74 proxies, and they're not just looking at the temperatures at the poles, but all over the planet, I've noticed that when people who were uh, climate global warming deniers actually look at the data, they're persuaded. However, there's still a lot of them thinking, okay, the planet's warming, but it's not human beings that are warming it, it's natural process. And what I basically explain in the book is that there are natural cycles that cause the climate to warm and to cool. And for the last 8,700 years, these natural cycles have been dramatically cooling the planet. But we've not seen that cooling because with the beginning of that cooling, we had a brief period of climate stability, which enabled the launch of human civilization and the growth of human civilization, and the pace of the growth of human civilization's been warming the planet at exactly the rate that the natural cycles have been cooling it. So to get this extreme climate stability, we need both fine-tuning of the natural cycles and fine-tuning of the develop development of human civilization, population, and technology. And it's been an amazing balance uh, for the past 9,500 years, with the exception of the past 70 years. Mm -hmm. What has happened in the past 70 years is the advance of human technology has been rising exponentially. And so now for the first time, we're warming the planet at a faster rate than the natural cycles are cooling it. Uh, but we're not at a catastrophic point yet. If you actually look at the fast record, we hit a peak temperature 8,700 years ago. And over those years until 1950, the natural cycles were actually slightly superseding the human warming. And so the global mean temperature very gradually and steadily declined by one degree centigrade. But in the last 70 years, we've gone back up to where we were 8,700 years ago. That's not a problem. What becomes a problem 
if that trend continues and we wind up warming the uh, planet by another two degrees centigrade. And uh, what we see in the ice age cycle, every time the global mean temperature has risen two to three degrees centigrade above where it is right now, it rapidly brings on an ice age. And so a lot of what I explain in this book is why global warming always brings on global cooling and catastrophic global cooling. So that should really be our concern. Let's not warm the planet up to such a degree that we rapidly drop the whole planet uh, deep into an ice age. And for the first time, we know why. When you warm the planet another two to three degrees centigrade, it melts the polar ice cap. And that polar ice cap today is reflecting sunlight with 60% efficiency. But if you melt it, the reflection is only 6%, which means the Arctic Ocean is gonna absorb a whole lot more heat from the sun when the ice is no longer there. And when that happens, you get more water vapor over the Arctic. And that water vapor will dump two to three times as much snow over Canada and Siberia and Northern Europe as it does right now. The only reason Canada is not covered with thousands of feet of ice today is that almost all of Canada is a desert. It simply doesn't get enough snowfall. But double or triple it, you're gonna have thousands of feet of ice covering all of Canada, a lot of the United States, and almost all of Siberia, and that will drop the whole world into a deep ice age. And uh, you in Australia will not be immune. Uh, almost all of Tasmania will be covered with thousands of feet of ice. And uh, even where you live in Melbourne, uh, you're gonna discover uh, that you're gonna experience the consequences. So this is something we definitely need to be worried about. Uh, but the main point of my book is, this is not an imminent crisis. If we do things to stabilize the climate, they'll actually enhance the world economy. And my whole point is, if we don't give people an economic incentive to stabilize the climate, we'll be too late. I mean, people will drag their heels if they see that they have to experience an economic sacrifice. Yeah. Dr. Hugh Ross is my guest. He's the author of this new book, Weathering Climate Change. And we're going to be back with uh, Hugh in just a moment talking about uh, what are some of those incentives? How could we actually go about doing that? What are some of those win-win-wins that we should actually be involved in? Um, and I, I'm sure, as I have, uh, this is a different mindset to what we've been hearing just in the public debate, and yet it makes so much sense. That's on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, Dr. Hugh Ross, the author of this new book, Weathering Climate Change. He is the uh, president and also the founder of Reasons to Believe as well. Uh, we've been talking, Hugh, just uh, a few moments ago about this idea that uh, the real danger in terms of climate change is actually if we keep going on the trajectory we've been on for the last 70 years where we're, we're warming the planet from human activity faster than the planet's cooling itself, that uh, eventually the heating will actually cause an ice age, as you described a couple of moments ago, which sounds counterintuitive until you explain it, and, and it does make sense. You did talk about the fact that we need win-win-win situations, wins for, for the people of the earth, for the, the climate, for, for the earth, for, for all of what's happening, and also the economy. You said we have to do that, otherwise people will just sit on their hands. I suppose this is that aspect of 
taking all of what the science is and, and understanding just blatant human nature, we've got to put those together. You can't just keep them separate, right? That's exactly right. I mean, the Bible is clear. We human beings are fundamentally selfish. So trying to motivate our children, for example, uh, to drop their standard of living by a factor of three, they're not going to buy it. I mean, I tried that on my own sons and their friends, and they said, we'd rather see the end of civilization than give up all of our high-tech toys and give up our income and our standard of living. And so we need to appreciate that uh, you know, we are fundamentally selfish. But there's also a biblical principle that God designed the earth in such a way uh, that we can fulfill the command he gave us. He said, we humans are to manage the resources of planet earth for our benefit and the benefit of all their life, which implies we will not have to choose. And I think that's what's driven the debate of climate change. People have been telling us we have to choose between what's economically beneficial for ourselves and what is beneficial for the ecosystems of the world and the climate. And if we don't have to make a choice, I think people are going to do uh, what is needed to stabilize the climate. And, you know, if you can put more money in people's pockets at the same time they stabilize the climate, they're going to go for it. In fact, what I've put in this book, Weathering Climate Change, are things that we can do that will boost the world economy, especially for the poor, at a much greater rate than a 7% per year return. And I use that figure because typically when people can make a 7% return on an investment, they go for it. You don't, have to, you don't have to pass a law. You don't have to get the politicians involved. If they see there's that kind of economic incentive, they're going to go for it. So uh, let's go with those. And what's amazing is I was able to document over 40 different things we can do that will significantly boost the world economy, and especially for the poorest people in the world, while we make things better for the ecosystems of the world and while we stabilize the climate. Yeah. Now, a whole host of those are, are in this book, Weathering Climate Change. We can't go through the whole book right now, obviously, but are, are there one or two that you could actually uh, share with us for us to get an idea and a, and a you know understanding of what you're meaning? Well, for example, thanks to human activity, we've made the Sahara Desert 10 times bigger than what it was 2,000 years ago. We've made the Gobi Desert four times bigger, and uh, we can reverse that. So one of the proposals I put in the book is the reason why the Sahara Desert is getting so much bigger. People on the southern edge are stripping the desert of vegetation for cooking fuel. What if instead we were to go to those people and say, here's all the kerosene you want for free. Burn as much as you want on the condition you work with us to replant the Sahara Desert. And let's replant it uh, with rice and uh, wheat and uh, other grains this would provide an income for the North African peoples. It would be a food supply for the populations of the world, and it would soak up huge quantities of greenhouse gases. Uh, likewise, we can better manage our forests. There's a lot of concern now about what's happening in the Amazon. People living there are cutting down the jungles and converting it to pasture land. And what they don't realize is the soil there is not rich enough to sustain long-term ranching. Uh, and the danger is we could literally turn the Amazon into a desert. Instead, we need to point out to them, look, research shows uh, that the old trees grow about four times slower than the younger trees. And what would be wise is to selectively uh, lumber the older trees 
And those are the ones you make the most money on because they're really big trees. And uh, let's harvest them before they die and decay. That would sequester the carbon in furniture and homes. Meanwhile, you replant with younger trees that grow two to four times faster, which means now the Amazon is going to be absorbing twice as much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and the people living there are going to make a whole lot more money than they would by converting it to ranching land. So again, and the ecosystem is going to do better because now they're going to have a healthier jungle for all the animals and plants uh, that live there. And as far as energy goes, uh, one thing I only hinted at in the book, but I've written on it extensively since, is why don't we pursue thorium nuclear reaction? Uh, it has a huge advantage over uranium reactors in the sense that there's a much bigger supply of thorium. You get 300 times as much energy from a ton of thorium than you do from a ton of uranium. It's safe to mine. You don't have to wear special equipment. It's impossible for the reactor to melt down, so it's safe. And you can't use the reactor to make nuclear weapons. So that means we can actually give these reactors to all the nations of the world without running the risk that they're going to turn it into weaponry. And it has the potential of producing electricity for half the price as the cheapest water power, which now ranks as the cheapest source of energy in the world, mm -hmm. which means we could literally replace all of our energy sources with this. And you say, is there enough of it? Yes, there's enough thorium in the crust of the earth to supply 100% of our energy needs worldwide for the next thousand years which means we could start using our fossil fuels uh, for medical uh, applications for different kinds of plastics, uh, which I think would be a more useful and profitable way uh, to take advantage of our fossil fuels. So, uh, Hugh, everything you've said, I sit here and I go, yes, yes, that, that makes sense. That, that, that solves it, like you said, the win-win-win. Why isn't it happening? But what is the, what's the block that's occurring that people are not saying, actually, that makes sense. Let's do just that and help those around the Amazon jungle, around the, the Gobi Desert. Let's do this in terms of our power. What, what's the actual block? I think it's just simply ignorance. For example, I've only had the opportunity to share this with a couple of political people. But when they look at these solutions, they say, you know, this is a no-brainer. All we need to do is publicize this. And I got one for you living in Australia is that if we were to replace beef cattle with emus and ostriches, you could actually produce the meat for about half the price of turkey, which is now the cheapest meat in the market. Uh, the meat tastes just like beef. It's just as rich in iron as beef, just as tasty, uh, but it doesn't have all that cholesterol, doesn't have the saturated fats. It's much healthier for you. So as an example where we can get a really valuable meat for a bottom rock bottom price, and the greenhouse gas emission from ostriches and emus is less than 2% of what you get from cows. And you get eggs. You get these huge eggs. Yeah. I mean, so again, it's an example of a win-win. On the other hand, I can tell you, a lot of emu and ostrich farms here in America have failed because people don't realize you cannot treat these birds like you do cows. Cows, you can throw them out in the field and ignore them for the next three years. You can't do that with these birds. They're highly social. And therefore, they need contact with one another. They need contact with humans. Treat them like your pets. You're going to make a lot of money. 
treat them like cows, they're going to go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. Hubert, um, pardon the way I'm, I'm phrasing this question. I can't quite come up with a, a better way. Um, and the question is this, why is it that you've seen this and others haven't? Why is it that others aren't grabbing a hold of this? Where is that insight that you're getting, perhaps that others aren't, aren't seeing on this? Well, I'm coming at this from a biblical perspective. You know, just looking at these biblical principles and saying, if I really accept that these principles are true, then there must be win-win solutions. Let's look for them. Now, what's encouraging to me is even people like Al Gore, who is advocating draconian economic sacrifices to stabilize the climate, he's beginning to come around and say, you know what, we're not going to motivate people uh, with mandated economic sacrifices. We already have evidence for that. When you pass laws to force people to make an economic sacrifice, they cheat. And if they don't cheat, other nations will cheat. I mean, we, we have many third uh, world examples where we see blatant uh, rejection of these attempts to by the United Nations to say, let's all agree to make these sacrifices. Well, if not everybody agrees, it's not going to happen. And you wind up with worse consequences than if you didn't have the law in the first place. But I am beginning to see people realizing, for example, with the thorium thing, five nations, including Australia, is actually beginning to pursue thorium nuclear power generations. It's beginning to happen. But I think we need to speed it up. And the only way to speed it up is to actually publicize, hey, this is a safe form of energy. Uh, you can actually handle the radioactive waste in 200 years rather than 50,000. And in most cases, just 50. Uh, so it's much less dangerous. There's no weapon possibility. They can generate huge amounts of energy. And uh, you know, once that gets out, although one thing I did put in the book, uh, to pursue this cheap forms of electricity generation, we have to protect the climate, the, the power grids. Because it's not just the climate of planet Earth that's important, it's the climate of the sun. And the sun does occasionally emit a powerful uh, flare. And a really powerful flare will knock out the world's power, power grids. And right now we're extremely dependent on those power grids. If we pursue some of these solutions, we'll be even more dependent. And so we need to take steps to protect our power grids. And right now there's only one protected power grid in the world. Mm, there you go. Um, you know, I also want to ask and, and move to a, perhaps more of a, um, a, a faith-based question here as well around this idea of um, what is the um, dilemma facing Christians as they look at climate change? As you've spent time with those of Christian faith, um, is it because sort of way back to the start of our conversation, they find themselves falling into political camps rather than looking at it from a faith perspective? What do you think is the biggest challenge from those of a Christian faith as they approach climate change? Well, I've run into a lot of Christians who are worried that uh, climate change is going to be used as a tool by governments to basically take away our freedoms. And so then they say, we've got to push back. Now they look at this as a big brother. And indeed, in order to enforce draconian economic sacrifices, our freedoms will have to be largely stripped. So I'm sympathetic with these Christians saying, you know, this is not God's way. Uh, we don't want some set of dictators telling us this is how you've got to live your life 
uh, or what we see, say, in mainland China, where they hand out, uh, you know, social credits if you do what the government wants you to do, and they put devices on you uh, to ensure that you're actually following through and what they want you to do. I'm very sympathetic with that. My whole point is none of that is necessary if we can come up with economic incentives. I mean, let the free market do do its thing, uh, and you know we can get the government to back out of this and let the free market take over. Then I think we've got something that's going to cause Christians to relax, and yeah, we need that freedom to spread the gospel. So yeah, I'm very sympathetic with their concerns and saying that's why we need a different approach uh, to delivering us uh, from climate instability. Yeah. Uh, the the flip of that question now too. Uh, the idea of, again, from a, a Christian faith-based perspective, what sort of leadership uh, can be shown to the rest of the world that you see? Is it this concept of let's talk win-win-win? Is that actually the thing we should do? Is there something else that perhaps Christian leaders could actually be leading into this space? Very good question. And I think we who are Christians need to communicate to the world we're committed to being mandates of this planet's resources, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of all life. We of all people should be part of, quote, the green movement. We should be the ones that are most concerned about creation care, but concerned about creation care from a biblical perspective. I mean, I know a lot of creation uh, care scholars that are not Christians, and they're basically advocating we need the government to force people what they need to do. And that's not what I see in scripture. So, uh, and we Christians need to basically make that very clear. We're all for creation care, but from a perspective that's gonna benefit the poor and uh, is gonna benefit the ecosystem. And this is actually taught in the Bible. I think a lot of non-Christians have no idea that these creation care principles are taught right in the pages of the Old Testament. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. Um, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, we said at the start when we were off, off uh, mic, I said I, I could talk to you for hours, and I really could, but we've taken up plenty of your time. We wish you all the best with this book, Weathering Climate Change, not just for all of those who will read it, but uh, in, in the work that you are doing in getting that out there. I think uh, some of the ideas or, or all the ideas you've brought to us today are uh, just stimulating our thinking and, and each of us to play that part. Um, you know, anyone can get a free chapter of the book at reasons.org slash Ross. And if we can get more people to read the book, that's why we're giving it away for free. Get this free chapter because you want people to realize, hey, there really are win-win solutions. Excellent. So that's reasons.org slash Ross, and you'll find it there. Uh, Hugh, once again, thank you so much for your time. Hey, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Dr. Hugh Ross, he's the author of the book, Weathering Climate Change. He's the founder and president of Reasons to Believe as well here on 89.9 The Light.